Now, while I love each and every single one of God's faithful men and women as recorded in Scripture and throughout the history of the Christian church, the giants of the faith who stood for the truths of God's Word, there are three, aside from the pinnacle example of Jesus Christ Himself, who is the perfect example of godliness and righteousness and, all, and everything, there are three, aside from the Lord Jesus Christ, who stand out for me in Scripture, who are inspiring to me in so many ways. One of them is Moses. Moses, a man of fortitude and humility, a man whose leadership of this grumbling nation of Israel was one of interceding on their behalf and saving them from the wrath of God so many times because he stood in, in between them and the Lord and prayed for them. The same with the Apostle Paul. I love reading the narrative of the Apostle Paul's life. A man so committed to preaching the gospel of his Lord and Savior, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that he would endure everything as he went out and preached that gospel. And no matter where he was, no matter what he was facing, he always had this spirit of contentment and joy in the Lord and focus on mission no matter what. If he was in prison, he was converting the guards and singing hymns in the prison. If he was getting beaten, he was getting beaten for the joy of the Lord. He had a complete trust in the Lord. If he was free, he was out there ministering. If, there was, if they threatened him with life, he said, okay, to die is gain. Fine, we'll let you live. Okay, to live is Christ. If there were riots, he counted it all joy. If he sat before magistrates, he preached to them the gospel in the clearest possible terms so that even some of the kings he preached to said, do you think you're going to convert me in a single day? That's how much pressure and force Paul exerted with the gospel. He always counted it joy. He knew the secret of contentment, whether he was in abounding riches or with nothing. His eyes were lifted up and focused on Christ, never on his immediate circumstances. And the third man that inspires me because of his faithful life lived to the glory and the honor of God regardless of the circumstances in which he found himself is John the Baptist. And as we come to our text this morning, we are let in on the final moments of John the Baptist's life. This glorious end to a most faithful life, if you look at it in the text, comes at the hand of some miserable and pitiful ruler as this ruler parties it up with all of his friends. As he drunkenly watches his niece come into the room and do this lewd and suggestive dance routine in front of him and in all of his party guests. And in his state of drunkenness and sexual excitement, he promised this dancer whatever she wanted. And what did, his, what did she want? Prompted by her mother, she asked Herod for the head of John the Baptist on a platter right now. And it was so. You see the way things go in this world sometimes. The righteous, the honorable, men like John the Baptist executed at the hands and at the word of the weak and the wicked. And while John's death wasn't met with the worldly pomp that is befitting a man of his quality and his character, look at John's life and you will see that his death and his life was no wasted death and life. As you look at John's life, you will see that he died as he lived, 
faithfully obeying the calling of God placed upon his life as he went out and called upon others to obey the will and the word and the commands of the Lord. Now we're going to just do a general run-through of John's life before we come to his death. If you go all the way back to Luke 1.15, the, the, the first chapter of Luke tells us, the Holy Spirit, the Lord tells us through Luke that John was filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And in Luke 1.15, he is considered great before the Lord. He was chosen by the Lord for this unique and singular honor of preparing the way for Messiah, of announcing the arrival of Messiah and pointing out that Messiah to the nation of Israel. This John was himself <clears throat> spoken of centuries earlier, earlier through the prophetic words of Isaiah. When Isaiah said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John's role as forerunner to Messiah included preaching the message of repentance, as you see in Matthew 3, verses 1 to 2, where we read, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His role also included baptizing Jesus in the Jordan. And although John consented to the baptism of Christ, he contested his worthiness for such a deed, saying to Jesus, if you recall, in Matthew 3.14, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? And Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Meaning, the life of Jesus is one that will, would and will and did fulfill every single last jot and tittle of God's holy law. Every single command, every single rule, every single aspect of the righteous law of God is fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And upon faith in and trust in and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, this perfect obedience that has been secured by Jesus by his obedience to the law, is then imputed or reckoned or counted to you who truly believe in him. And John played a part. John's role as forerunner also involved his declaration of and pointing to Jesus as Messiah to the nation. And we see in the Apostle John's Gospel, not John the Baptist, the Apostle John's Gospel, in John 1, 29, when John saw Jesus coming toward him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And again, the very next day, as he saw Jesus again, John was standing with two of his disciples. He looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. John himself made it very clear, For this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he, Messiah, Jesus, might be revealed to Israel. And John had, declares that he has seen and borne witness that this Jesus is the Son of God. And even though, here's the humility of John, even though early on it was John who was bringing in all of the humongous crowds, they were coming out into the wilderness to see him and to hear him, he never thought to keep their attention fixed on himself. A lesser man may have very well been tempted to do so, right? As you see thousands of people arrayed in front of you, all hanging on your every word, the human condition is one that might very well succumb to the temptation of having those, that attention stay on you. But John did not. He kept pointing people to Jesus and then made it very clear, he must increase and I 
must decrease. John's life was of such a quality. John's life was so filled with faith and so committed to obedience and so committed to the person of Jesus Christ that Jesus himself held forth John's life as an example to the crowds for their consideration. You remember, right, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said this to the crowds, What did you go out into the wilderness to see in reference to John the Baptist? Did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it was written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of a woman, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So again, recall, John was drawing tremendous crowds out into the wilderness. The text tells us in Matthew 3, 5, Jerusalem and all Judea and the region about the Jordan were all going out to see John the Baptist. And why? Why were they all going out to see John the Baptist? Because, as Jesus said, he was not like a reed shaken by the wind, and he was definitely not like a man dressed in soft clothing. So if you recall, we, we, we discussed these a few months back, but let's take a look at them again. Look at these two commendations spoken by Jesus about John. The first, what did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What kind of man was John that he so astonished and impressed the crowds enough that they would travel from their comfortable towns and cities into the harsh and disagreeable wilderness to see and to hear John? John was so unlike the men of the world that the people in the culture and in the cities took notice. John wasn't concerning himself with all of the issues that were going on in Rome. No, he went into the wilderness, apart from all of those, away from that, to focus on obeying his Lord and discipling and teaching the people repentance and faith in in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he would not let anything else mingle in with his, his task. So what sort of man stirred the people by his formidable preaching and lifestyle that they moved from their comfortable sofas out into the more inhospitable regions of the wilderness? First, as we read in the text here in Matthew 11, he was not a reed shaken by the wind. Now I want you to just consider for a second reeds and bulrushes. If there is no wind blowing, that reed can stand straight up. It can stand up tall. It can look... Some of these reeds and bulrushes can grow really high. They can look quite majestic in their standing straight. However, when a wind blows against that bulrush or that reed from whatever direction, forcing it or pushing it or pressing against that reed that once stood tall when there was no wind, those same reeds bend and bow to the weight of those winds. John was not like that. John was not prone to winds of anxiety over worldly issues. John was not prone to the winds of compromise on theological issues to, keep, uh, to appease and keep from the offending the culture in which he lived. John was not pushed back and forth by the winds of pressure to mingle current events 
into his gospel witness. And in using this word picture, Jesus was commending John for being a true prophet. As real, as bold, as clear, and as direct, and as faithful to the preaching of repentance and obedience to God's word as anyone could possibly be. John continually pointed everyone to Christ, professing him to be the Messiah, revealing him to be the Son of God, the King of Israel. And John was not one to vacillate. He was not one to bend as the wind blew this way and then to bend the opposite way as the wind blew that way. John was not one to imitate or take on himself the properties of a chameleon, taking on the colors of whatever is going on so that he might hide in the background. No, John preached truth. John proclaimed truth no matter what the issue. And John declared truth no matter the person to whom he was speaking. And listen, we know that's not easy. You and I are constantly tempted to remain silent, right? When we know we ought to admonish or exhort another one of our brothers or sisters who is caught in some sort of sin. We would rather avoid the possibility of their anger. We would rather avoid exposing sin so that we don't cause offense rather than calling them closer to the Lord Jesus Christ and taking the repercussions or the, re- re- the response of the person we are calling to repentance. Now, I want to be clear here. We are talking specifically, when I mention that, we're talking specifically about the message of repentance from sin and faith in Christ. This is the message we tend to avoid. Because we have no problem preaching our numerous personal gospels. We are all engaged in doing so. We have no problem exhorting people to follow and believe in the things that we appreciate and cling to in the world. We have no problem evangelizing everyone we come into contact with into our politics, our opinions, our preferences, our TV shows, our books, and various other things. We have no problem doing that. We have no problem calling people to join in with our activist causes. Those things are all easy. What I'm talking about here, what we'd rather avoid is clear calls for repentance from sin to unashamed salvation and obedience to Jesus Christ. That's what we avoid. In many cases, we would rather, for the sake of our own comfort, let another person go on sinning than bring the light of God's word to bear in their life and exhort them to repentance. Right? It's easy for us to say, I like this particular diet. Everybody should have it. It's easy for us to say, everybody should drive this model of car because it's amazing. What's not easy to say is, you must repent of your sin. And you must turn to Jesus Christ in faith. If you're going to be an evangelist, don't take the easy route and just evangelize people into your worldly particularities. Follow the mission that Jesus has set for us to teach people to obey everything he has commanded. That's the harder route. And such was a man as John. 
John was a man who relentlessly called out sin and called for repentance, even though this brought much trouble into his life. If he caught wind of sin among the people of Israel, as the people were listening to him preach, they had better buckle up. Because he would let them know exactly what God's word had to say about the decisions and the choices and the lifestyles and the doctrines that they were believing. And he would do so, he would call them to repentance without apology. If someone were to go to him and say, you know, your tone is a little bit mean, John. He'd say, you must repent. Like it, it was a different time, right? It was a different, this is a different type of man. Whereas we might hold back the truth in favor of flattering or complimenting another person because we'd rather avoid the more difficult conversation. We prove, it, we tend to prove to be weaklings in this area. John was no weakling. John was not wavering or teetering or tottering or uh, with cowardly fear, but always proclaiming the unadulterated commands of our Lord. And this is exactly why people left their homes and went out into the wilderness. They didn't go to see another culturally conditioned man driven by his own desire for comfort and for security and for safety. No, for John it didn't matter if the crowds cheered for him or threw stones at him. He remained stubborn and unfaltering in his commitment to obedience and to his task of calling others to the same. He was a man who knew what God's word demanded and did not let the cultural conditions, pressures, or popular ideas change his mind or shake his confidence. He knew what God's word taught and external pressures didn't cause him to recalculate or reevaluate or deconstruct or rethink or enter into a conversation about that word. No, he spoke with confidence God's word. He was not a man of one mind today, as the winds blew this way, and as another, a, a different mind tomorrow. No, John's message of repentance from sin and belief in Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John's persistent call to bearing fruit and keeping with repentance, it never changed. He did not live his life in search of smiles, nor did he live his life in fear of frowns, anger, or blowback. He simply set his face in the direction of his Lord Jesus Christ and lived totally for him and him alone, come whatever may. He was not swayed by public opinion. He was not swayed by the news cycles of his own day. When it came to his preaching ministry, he remained committed to his prophetic task, firm, resolute, committed, unwavering in his proclamation of the very same message to all peoples in all places at all times. He didn't shift it or edit the message that God had committed to him, whether preaching to the regular folk, saying, repent, or preaching to the religious establishment saying, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, or to the civic authorities where he admonished Herod saying, it is not lawful to have Herod as your wife, or Herodias as your wife. Didn't matter what level of people he was talking to, it was always the same. Turn from your sin, turn to Jesus. And he repeatedly called upon Herod to repent for his entrance into an illicit and adulterous affair or marriage to Herodias. 
And most likely, Herod, like, most, like many people do, thought John far too narrow-minded, far too inflexible, far too committed to the rough edges of his religion, and too serious about repentance. But all accusations leveled against those like John, all those accusations you can find leveled against people who are faithful to preaching and teaching God's Word today. You're too inflexible, too committed, too serious about repentance. However, this is the exact reason for Christ's commendation of John. People got up out of their, off their couches and went to the wilderness because the world has seen enough weak and compromised men. The world has seen enough men who lack spine, lack nerve, and lack metal. Such men do not inspire the crowds. And so Jesus made it clear. You came to hear John in the wilderness because he is uncompromising, because he is brave, because he is unflinchingly resolved. This is why you left your homes to come into the wilderness. You came to see an indomitable man, one who will not sacrifice the offense of God's word to appease the crowds, one who will not sacrifice the truth of God's word even to save himself from danger. One who will not sacrifice God's word to ensure ease and comfort in his own life. No, you came to see and to hear a man who stands on the unshakable truth of God's word and declares it to you clearly, directly, and without apology. That's why you came to the wilderness. You came to hear a man who very much fit the description of Paul who exhorted... uh, fit the description Paul exhorted the Ephesian church to follow when he wrote in Ephesians 4... Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. To no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. So now I want you to compare and contrast yourself with John's example. Are you a reed shaken by the wind? Are you one who is blown about by whatever's happening in the world? Now, this can take multiple forms. It can, all, it can take the form of bending with the wind and capitulating to or accepting or living out the ever-changing and terribly wicked cultural disobedience that is happened that, that, uh, in God's Word. You see a number of churches who now wave rainbow flags and things like that in front of their churches. That is a capitulation to the cultural views of the day. That's one way you can, you can blow along with the wind, but you can also blow along with the wind by being overly affected, overly consumed, overly anxious, and overly angered by what is going on in the world. Both of these things are the reed bending in the wind, and they keep us from running the race so as to win the prize. John went out into the wilderness. John did that to take his eyes off the world because he knows, as you and I should know, that this is not our home. That we are foreigners here. We are sojourners. And our task as we sojourn through this world that is not our home is to call people into citizenship into the country that we are walking towards. So take our eyes off the world and imitate John who imitates Christ. And listen, know this. You can do it if you have the Holy Spirit in you. John was filled with the same Holy Spirit that you are filled with if you truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Stand on his word, proclaim and declare the necessity of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and trust him. Jesus has everything under control, come what may. For John, he needed to trust the Lord when it came time for his execution at the hands of Herod. And who knows what it's going to be for you. I mean, we've lived in a relative, we've lived a few centuries of relative ease. That's not the normal state of affair for Christians in this world. The vast majority of Christians in all the different places in the world have lived in such a way that they are martyred for their faith throughout the history of this world. And we've lived in this season of comfort and this season of relative security for so long that we have no idea what to do when it seems like the winds are shifting. When it seems like normalcy is starting to come back. For John... It was his head being served up on a platter to a young girl so she could take it to her mom. I don't know what it's going to be for you. It could very well be the cessation of your life. It could very well be prison time. It could very well be the taking away of every single right that you, that you have in this culture. Are you prepared, like John, to deal with it, whatever comes, because you love and stand upon the foundation of Christ and you know this is not your home. Jesus commended John also, not just for, not, not just for being different than a reed shaken by the wind, but he also pointed people's attention to his lifestyle. John chapter 11, verse 8, Jesus said, What then did you go out to see? If you didn't go out to see some man who, who just goes along with whatever the culture's doing, then what did you go see? Did you go see? Did you go to look at a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing, they're in king's houses. So the idea here is that a man dressed in soft clothing is a man dressed in smooth clothing, clothing that's pleasing to the touch, comfortable, fancy. The word even can, can mean effeminate. Is that what the crowds went out to see? Did they go out to see some delicate, luxurious, or perhaps even effeminate man? Did they go out to see a man living a life of ease with his feet kicked up and his head reclining on a pillow with his hands comfortably behind his, his neck? Did they go out to see a man enjoying all the comforts of the world and fighting to ensure that he can keep all of those comforts? No, they did not. Again, that's the type of man every single one of us has seen 10,000 times before. John was no pampered man, but was instead, and this is why Jesus commended him to us, he was a man who denied himself worldly comforts for the sake of his call and his mission in the world. John denied self-indulgence. He denied self-seeking, self-centeredness, and self-protection. John continually put himself and his very own life at risk each and every time he called the peoples to repentance. John tossed aside, as it were, as though it was nothing more than rubbish, all personal interest and comfort to create even more room for obedience to Christ. His reason for existence in this world was Christ. Christ's name proclaimed. Not the preservation of his own comforts in this life. John knew those come later. And boy, oh boy, will they be fantastic. But for now, he was engaged in the difficult labors of going out into the fields for the harvest. 
And Jesus held this John up to the crowds. Inspect this man. Look at this man's life. Asking them, in essence, did you come out here to look for someone who plays the world's games? Did you come out here to look at someone who gets angry with or does whatever the world does or gets angry with whatever the world gets angry with? Did you come out here to see someone who just rejoices with what the world rejoices at? Or did you come out, come searching, did you come searching for someone who does everything in his power to sidle up to the rich and the famous, the kings and the princes, in order to gain for themselves material comforts and professional advancements? No, you didn't come out here to see that because you've already seen it. What you've never seen or what is extremely rare to see, is a man who is so truly committed to God that he is for you. He is so zealously and enthusiastically aimed at your good as a people, O Israel, that he sets the world and all of its comforts behind him so that he may boldly, clearly, and repeatedly declare to you the will of God at great cost to himself. And you see, the crowds knew the general contours of Scripture. They knew, that, and they had read a number of the numerous false prophets who lived in the palaces with the kings of Israel in the Old Testament. They knew of these soft-clothed prophets who spoke soft words and told the kings everything that they wanted to hear. And by doing so, maintained for themselves luxurious and illustrious positions in those courts. And as the kings did that in those days, so do we. We have a penchant for listening to those who tell us what we want to hear, don't we? We might say, I want the truth. But really, in many cases, we don't want the truth. What we want is someone who will parrot back to us our own thoughts and our own opinions and our own preferences. We want those prophets like, our, like we witnessed in the Old Testament who told the kings what they wanted to hear. Here's an example. King Ahab, that wicked king in Israel, he employed 400 prophets. And on one occasion, Ahab hoped to initiate a war against Syria. And he called on Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, to join him in this endeavor. And so Ahab gathered together his 400 prophets and he asked those prophets in the presence of Jehoshaphat, should we go to war? And all of the false prophets in unison said this in 1 Kings 22, go up for the Lord will give it into the hands of the king. Now Ahab was a wicked king, but Jehoshaphat was a righteous king. And something rubbed Jehoshaphat wrong about all these prophets. And so Jehoshaphat who was a king who did what was right in the sight of the Lord, noting these groveling, slimy, toad-like prophets, asked Ahab, is there not another prophet of the Lord around that we might inquire of? You see, these soft-clothed prophets didn't exactly inspire Jehoshaphat's confidence, and so Ahab slowly turned towards Jehoshaphat and said, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah the son of Imlah, but I hate him! For he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And so at Jehoshaphat's request, Micaiah was ushered into their presence, and guess what he did? He prophesied the exact opposite of Ahab's 400 fanboy prophets. 
And as he did so, one of the false prophets, despising what was being said to them by Micaiah, came near to Micaiah and struck him on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of the Lord go from us to speak to you? And while these false prophets went on their way in peace, because they told Ahab what he wanted to hear, guess what Ahab said about Micaiah? He said to his guards, Seize Micaiah. Take him back to the city and put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Hear all you peoples. So you see, the false prophets were roaming about the king's palace, telling the king what he wanted to hear, being a nice little echo chamber for him. See, echo chambers are not a new phenomenon. We live in a world of echo chambers. For example, be careful about YouTube. You watch one video on YouTube, guess what the rest of your YouTube feed is going to direct you to? That exact same worldview. The algorithms will push continually like-minded videos inducing or producing, bringing to your view content that is wonderfully tailored to fit your preferences and opinions. YouTube is a, an echo chamber creator. And depending on which news, like we, we, we tend to focus on a specific news outlet and allow that news outlet to form our understanding. And then we say, oh, those other news outlets, they're so awful. No, m- maybe they're not. Basically, we've been, we get so easily sucked into an echo chamber looking at and listening to only what I want to hear, only what buttresses my heart's already settled dispositions. And what we need to do is keep in mind this fact. Our hearts are deceitful. Our hearts will push us in the direction of our flesh and of ease. It's easy to stay in the group of those who are like me and who think like me rather than fight to obey and to love Christ with all of my mind and all of my heart and all of my soul as I strive to love my fellow brothers and sisters who may be caught in an echo chamber different than mine. Don't listen to the false prophets who just tell you what you want to hear. Bring in a Micaiah every so often. But listen, Micaiah, who comes and speaks truth to the king, was hated by the king and tossed into prison for his labors. Men like Micaiah are rare. Men like John are rare. To speak the truth of the Lord regardless of the consequences is rare. More often than not, the prophets you will encounter desire the soft robes of compromise over the cramped prison cells of faithfulness. And this growth and expansion of self-serving, feeble, gutless prophets in Israel, of prophets concerned with telling people what they want to hear so that they might pad their own houses and their own lifestyles, led to these most terrifying words through one of his true prophets, Jeremiah. And listen, listen to the destruction and the devastation that comes when we surround ourselves by f- with fal- people who preach falsehood. Jeremiah chapter 6, from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall at that time, at the time that I punish them. They shall be overthrown, says the Lord. 
Such words ought to cause each and every one of us to think about our own lives, about our own penchant, again, for, desire, for surrounding ourselves with echo chambers who merely buttress our already held ideas and opinions. What you need, what we all need, are John types in our lives who apply and declare to you without apology the exhortation and admonition and truth of God's word. You and I are all prone to blind spots because our flesh is waging war against our spirit. And so you and I ought to be praying for and thanking God for those who love him enough to speak like John into yours and my life. Even when, especially when, it grates against you. Will you be an Ahab calling for 400 echo chamber prophets and imprisoning the one faithful prophet or Jehoshaphat who overlooks the 400 fake prophets in order to search for the true one. This is what the soft-clothed prophets led Israel to, complete and total destruction at the hands of the Assyrians. And Jesus says, you've witnessed such men before. You've seen it in your own history before. And because John is not this type of man, because he's not sitting here whispering sweet nothings in your ear, because John more than anything else loves the Lord and is for you, and he has left the world's goods behind in order to proclaim truth for you, this is why you have come out into the wilderness to listen to him. If the crowds had wanted to gaze at soft-clothed men, they could have gone to the king's houses and seen a whole bunch of them. That's where soft-clothed men lived, as Jesus said. It was John's unrelenting, focused commitment to speaking and declaring the truth of God's word that led John, however, into direct, immediate conflict with Herod the Tetrarch. In Scripture, we are introduced to three, a number of Herods. First is Herod the Great, who ruled over all of Judea, Samaria, Galilee, and the rest. This is the man we encounter, uh, this is the man the wise men encountered when they came searching for he who has been born king of the Jews. Herod the Great is also the, the leader remembered for ordering the murder of all the male children in Bethlehem two years and under in order to eliminate the baby brought to his attention by the wise men. But after Herod's death... Rome split up his territory into three parts and handed each of those three parts to one of Herod's sons. One of the sons is named Archelaus. He ruled over Judea and Samaria. Another son named Herod Philip ruled over another region. And still a third son, Herod Antipas, ruled over this region of Galilee. It's this Herod Antipas that is in, we are introduced to here in the text. He is the one who put John to death for beheading. And why did he do so? John's Proclamation, unrelenting proclamation of truth led him into conflict with Herod. You read it in 14.3. For the sake, John was bound by Antipas for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Now, a little backstory. Herod Antipas, his brother and fellow ruler, Herod Philip, married a woman named Herodias. And Antipas took a visit to Herod Philip's domain, and he took a liking to Herodias, and Herodias took a liking to him. And so they engaged in an illicit relationship right under the noses of their current spouses. And Herod, Antipas, and Herodias both agreed to separate from their current spouses in order to bring to marry each other. Now, the Jews under Herod Antipas's rule did not appreciate his actions. And it would seem that he sought to gain public approval for this 
illicit marriage for his sinful and dastardly deeds by calling upon John the Baptist to endorse this divorce from his first wife and marriage to Herodias. And had John done so, his life would have just been so much easier. Had he just said, yes, good, marriage is good, everything's good, perhaps public sentiment might have been swayed even. But everything we've learned about John up to this point already prepares you for what he is going to say. He refused to endorse the marriage, but instead said, and the word here means, it says because John had been saying to him, means that he said it and he just kept saying it over and over and over and over again. It is not lawful for you, Herod, to have your brother's wife. And John proclaimed, like Micaiah, the exact opposite of what Herod was looking to hear. And this angered both Herod and Herodias to no end. Mark tells us about Herodias' response to John's words. It says in Mark 6, 19, she held a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. You see, John is an equal opportunity rebuker. He's rebuking religious leaders, calling them a brood of vipers. He's rebuking uh, Herod for his sinful relationship with Herodias. Now, no doubt, John had people clapping for him as he called out, Herod. No doubt the religious leaders heard John and his proclamations to Herod, and they said, yes, all right, way to go, John. But those same religious leaders hated it when John pointed his finger at them. And therein lies the life of the prophet, right? People love it when they rebuke and exhort those they don't like, but they'll rally against and slander that same prophet when the finger is pointed in their own chest. No matter how much a person loves their sin, no matter how hard we try to paint our beloved sins with the colors of virtue, no matter how hard we hope to defend or justify our practice of sin, a prophet like John wouldn't stand for it. Nor would he let you off the hook for it like he didn't let Herod and Herodias. You see, a man like Herod would rather maintain his sexual sin and unlawful relationship with Herodias then hear and obey John's call to repentance. He valued his sin and his fleshly passions more than repentance and turning to God's word. And so John came calling him to obedience, and Herod lashed out in anger against him, and Herodias held a grudge and sought to kill him. And so let me ask you, are you like Herod and Herodias? So in love with your sin that you will hide it or live in it rather than experience the joy of repentance from it. Because most likely, in a, in, a, in a crowd this big, in a crowd of people watching at home, there are some of you right now engaged in, actively engaged in sinful conduct of all sorts. Whether those sins be sexual sins, perhaps even adulterous affairs that you might be carrying on in secret right now. Perhaps you have secret internet accounts that you don't want your spouse to know about that you're consistently checking in on. Perhaps you have sins of deception as you repeatedly lie and deceive those around you for various reasons. Perhaps you're holding on to sins of anger and greed and bitterness and the like, and when people get too close, you'd rather lash out rather than repent. And how, state, how sad a state it is when you love your sin more than you love to repent of your sin. And some of you, some of you hide your sin very well. 
Some of you have concealed your sin very, very well from the eyes of others, and you would rather continue to secretly engage over and over in those sins than repent of them. Listen, next time you get angered by someone, a fellow brother or sister says to you in a prophetic style, I want you to stop and just ask yourself, why am I getting upset here? Why am I getting angry here? Are they hitting on something that I should be addressing? Are they getting... Are they attacking an idol that, I must, that I've been protecting for a long time that I must demolish and knock down? Are you like Herod and Herodias, who when called to the carpet for their sinful conduct, hold grudges and seek to silence those who speak words of truth and life into your soul? The sinful decision of Herod to divorce his wife and marry Herodias actually led to great embarrassment for Herod. Because the, the father of Herod's first wife was na- a man named Aretas, who was the king of the Arabs, uh, the Arab Nabataeans. And so this father of his first jilted wife sought vengeance against Herod, and he sent his armies into Herod's territories, and he ran roughshod over all of Herod's armies, defeating them quite handily. And the only reason Herod survived was because Rome interfered and saved him. And the peoples... Josephus, the Jewish historian, records that the peoples believed that the destruction of Herod's army was a direct result of divine judgment upon, of, of God upon him for his cowardly, unjust treatment of John the Baptist. So now I want you to just take a look here at this phrase. John said it's not lawful for Herod to have Herodias. What does that mean? Well, according to the law of Moses in Leviticus 18.16, you read this. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. And in 2021, if a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. The idea here being that because a husband and wife are one flesh, for a man to take his brother's wife is in some way to take his brother. This is the level of impurity that is lived out in such a wicked deed. This is such a heinous act. I want you to see how all three gospel writers inspired by the Holy Spirit refer to Herodias in these texts because it's quite shocking, actually. Listen to what Luke says in 319. Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by John for Herodias, his brother's wife. Matthew, look how Matthew says it in 14.4. Herod bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. And look at Mark, in Mark 6, 6, 17, and 18. It was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Four times Herodias is mentioned, and every single time, whose wife is she? Herod's brother's wife. And Mark makes it clear, Herod Antipas had married her. But yet the text continually says, even though Herod Antipas had married her, she was still Herod Philip's wife. Herod had celebrated a marriage ceremony to Herodias, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John the Baptist all refer to her the same way, not as Antipas' wife, but as Philip's. And again, here are the Bap- John the Baptist's words in Mark 6.18. It is not lawful for you to have, present tense, your brother's wife. 
So while Herod and Herodias were married in the eyes of the law, the Holy Spirit would not let any of God's people declare this to be true in Scripture. But instead, because the relationship is unlawful and adulterous, Herod Antipas is not married to Herodias in the Lord's eyes. No, Herod has his brother Philip's wife and so is engaged in a protracted, adulterous affair with this woman. Now that seems contrary to popular belief, right? There are, it would seem, instances in which two people can enter into an unlawful marriage, which is simply a long, protracted, continual relationship of adultery. At the very least, a man taking the wife of his still-living brother to himself would be considered you having your brother's wife and not being married in the Lord's eyes to that woman. I don't know how much further you could take it, but specifically, that seems to be the case for that. And this repeated declaration of uh, John enraged Herod so much so that he wanted to put John to death. But he didn't put John to death. Why? Because he feared the people. They held him to be a prophet. This is a big deal. They haven't had a prophet in their midst for over 400 years. And here comes a prophet, and he speaks the truth, and now the king or uh, uh, the tetrarch is upset by the prophet, doing what a prophet is called to do, and instead of celebrating this first prophet in 400 years, throws him in jail. And Herod, Herodias, her scheming went into overdrive. And so Herod was putting on a party. And at his party... The daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, 14.6. So here's a party thrown for Herod, and these parties often included a number of shameful acts of tremendous drunkenness along with erotic and lewd displays of sexual immorality. And now as the party is progressing, as the men keep drinking, and as, uh, then all of a sudden her, the daughter of Herodias enters into the room and she starts dancing. And most commentators agree that this was a provocative dance routine that was designed to arouse and excite this room of drunken partiers and arouse them she did. You see, it says the dance pleased Herod. The pleasing, the word for pleasing here is a euphemism, meaning a polite way of saying that Herod was excited. And in his lust-filled excitement, he promised to give her on oath whatever she might ask. See, Herod the fool that he was made an oath in front of all of these dignitaries, all of his political associates, and all of those attendees at his party. And for him then to violate the oath that he just gave in front of them would not inspire much confidence among those people in his word, would it? And so the daughter ran out to see her mother, and her bitter grudge-holding mother said, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter, which she went to, the, to, to Herod to say. And Mark writes it, I want you to give me the head of John the Baptist, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. See, not only do I want the head of John the Baptist, but I want it right now. Just in case a sober Herod might be more responsible than a drunk one, she requests John's head here, now, immediately. Now, if you were a good man, perhaps you would say, you know what, listen, I didn't mean that I was going to kill someone for you when I made that oath. The oath was being offered in a spirit of bestowing rewards upon you. But Herod didn't want to look bad. He was a weaker man. And for the sake of his reputation, he ordered the beheading of John the Baptist. In order to save face in front of his party guests, he added yet another violation of God's word to his already rather filled out resume of wickedness. 
So you see, John's life was a life of great hardship. Why? Because he obeyed the Lord. His life was a life of great difficulty and loneliness, as is the case with a number of God's uncompromising evangelists through history. And now, after a year in prison, the herald of Messiah's arrival, the greatest man born of a woman up to that point in human history, he'd fulfilled his task, his work had come to a close, and John's life is inspirational to us in that it was, the life of a great, it was a life of great faith. His task was one of the great privileges given by God to any man. And yet even John, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, the first of the new, concluded his life in some dark, humid dungeon beheaded at the request of some grudge-holding mother's erotic dancer daughter asking for it. You don't know how your life's going to end. You don't know how the faithfulness that you live out for the Lord in the here and now is going to end. I'm sure John didn't know it would end like this. And while the end of this saint's life wasn't glorious by the world's standards, his current situation is. While it might seem so unjust, those involved in the heinous crime of his death only serve to store up more wrath for themselves in the day of judgment. And listen how the platters are going to turn. As John now feasts with the Lord in eternity, while the Herods of the world will be served on a platter the cup of God's wrath. We'll end there. Father, we thank you and we praise you. We love you for giving us the inspiring stories of faithful men and faithful women in your word. And upon hearing that, John the, that Jesus was doing ministry in Galilee, Herod thought that it was John the Baptist re-resurrected, and that caused him great fear. But Herod had a lot more to worry about than a, re, a, res, a possibly resurrected John the Baptist. He has to worry about your judgment for his wickedness because he refused to repent. And in like manner... I pray for each and every one of us who might be holding on to secret sins and filling up a, one, a, a large resume of wickedness that we refuse to repent of. I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring that to the forefront of our minds and help us to recognize that there is a far greater thing for us to worry about than repenting of our sin. We must worry about not repenting of our sin and facing your eternal wrath and judgment. Lord, you have sent the Lord Jesus Christ to us, the one that John pointed to for our salvation. You have sent him because you loved us and you love this world. And in Christ, you make, and in, through us, by the work of Christ, you make your appeal for all peoples in the world to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And so I pray that that would be the case. I pray that as we look at John the Baptist's life, that you would Bring our hearts to a place where our primary goal, as we've listened in um, communion this morning and as we've listened in the word this morning, would be one of repentance. Help us not to be like Herod, hiding our sin and walking ever deeper into it, but those who bring it out into the light, repent of it, and move on in joy and delight and salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in our Lord Jesus Christ's precious name.